Good morning, everyone. I'm glad to see everyone survive the blizzard of 2018. I mean, that was crazy on Thursday, wasn't it? I heard so many horror stories of people who were stuck in traffic for three or four more hours just to go a couple of miles. It was like the whole state went into gridlock over a couple of inches of snow. Sometimes I think God uses nature just to show us how fragile our human systems really are. Maybe he's trying to humble us or get us to take those road advisories seriously. I'm no prophet, so I can't say for sure. We are nearing the end of our fall message series where we've been going through a mostly ignored part of the Bible called the Minor Prophets. And they certainly saw God's hand at work in their circumstances. Our theme is God Gives Hope. And we're looking at how God is, is a hope dispenser. I mean, God is a hope dispenser. That's what God does. He gives hope to the hopeless and power to the powerless, strength to the weak, purpose to the confused, rest to the weary. He gives a new way forward for those who feel like maybe they've hit, a, uh, hit one of life's dead ends. What you thought was the end of the road with God becomes a bend in the road. That's what God does. He gives hope. Now the elders and pastors and staff of this church, we think this topic of hope is so important that we even tied it to the new model for our church family that you've seen on the new sign on the street corner or over all our graphics. Hope around the corner. Hope around the corner. Because we believe God is at work in all of our circumstances all the time. He is an active God. God is up to something. And it's our job to kind of sync up with what God is doing. Our job is to get in step with what God is already doing, get our lives in line with his will and direction, and then trust him for what's around the corner that we may not see yet. Trust him for what we may not be able to see just yet because we can't see very far down the path. Trust him for the unknown, believing that hope is around the corner. It's important to remember that hope in the Bible is not just wishful thinking. Hope is always tied to Jesus Christ. Biblical hope is Christ-centered. Hope is always connected to Jesus, to what he has done for us by dying for our sins, what he is doing for us now as the risen and reigning Lord, and what he will do for us in the future beyond death. Our hope is always tied to Jesus, our substitute, our Savior, our reigning Lord, our coming King. That's hope. We sort of adopted a scripture to remind us of all this. 1 Peter 1.3 says, and would you please just read it with me off the screen? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A new and living hope. Today we're going to look at how the prophet Zechariah offered a message of hope to the people of ancient Israel because we face many of the same discouraging things that troubled them. We live in a world filled with discouraging situations and discouraged people. Many people have been kind of dissuaded or detoured from the path that God wants them to be on. I think without question, the number one reason Christians do not reach deeper levels of spiritual maturity and peace is because they feel defeated by some circumstance in their lives. When people feel defeated, the tendency is either to lash out or to pull in. When we lash out, we get angry about some, some circumstance in our lives, and then we translate that anger to God or to the church. God didn't answer the prayer the way they thought he should, so they're giving up on church. 
uh, someone didn't treat them the way they thought they should be treated, and they get mad about it because, you know, real Christians wouldn't act that way, and they blame the church. It hurts me to say this, but there are so many angry Christians out there. They lash out, or they pull in. They withdraw, they start skipping worship, they stop giving financially, they stop serving or volunteering as they should. They're just done. You know, I've heard too many people say that, that they're just done. They've given in to a sense of discouragement that stems from, you know, some unresolved anger because they felt slighted in some way. And Christians disengage in Christian fellowship because they've given in to feelings of discouragement and they say, what's the use? And so they pull in. It's exactly the situation faced by the people in Zechariah's audience. Remember, the Jewish people had been conquered by the Babylonians, and the city of Jerusalem, their pride and joy, had been burned to the ground. Jerusalem was the center of their government, their religion, their whole culture. It would be like Washington, D.C., New York, and Los Angeles all being destroyed at the same time. Uh, they were taken as captives, forcefully deported into what would be modern-day Iraq where they were kept for more than 70 years. Finally, a remnant returned to Jerusalem to rebuild. Zechariah and his older cohort friend Haggai ministered to the Jews who returned to Jerusalem. And the people were discouraged. Their once beautiful city was, was just like a ghost town. Everything of value had been looted. The fields around Jerusalem were bare and the, they started to rebuild the temple. They laid the foundation, and then they just ran out of gas. They had enough trouble kind of eking out a living for themselves that they didn't have time to take care of God's house. And their non-Jewish neighbors objected to the rebuilding of the temple. The motto of the tribes around them was, not in my neighborhood, not in my backyard. And so they harassed the Jews every way they could and then threatened to go to war unless the project was stopped. So the Israelites gave up their hopes of a glorious new beginning were beginning to fade away. So for 20 years, 20 years, no work was done on the temple. Then in the year 520 B.C., Haggai and Zechariah took up the challenge of encouraging God's people with a message of hope. They knew that this broken down condition of the temple really symbolized the spiritual and emotional condition of the people. As long as that temple lay in ruins, the people of Israel were broken people too. And the really good news was that from the time Haggai and Zechariah started their ministry, it only took four years for the temple reconstruction to be completed. From 20 years of nothing to completely finished in four years. I mean, what a boost that gave to the people of Israel. A completed temple, it restored their self-confidence, restored their self-respect, their sense of community. But most importantly, it restored their relationship with the Lord God. Well, how did Zechariah do it? What did he say that had such a dramatic effect and caused such a total turnaround? Now, the book of Zechariah is longer than some of the prophets we've looked at over the last few weeks. It's 14 chapters, so I can only skim the surface today. In fact, I really just want to read the first six verses of chapter 1 because they tell us kind of in a nutshell what the rest of the 14 chapters are all about. So here's chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, 
and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they did not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, didn't they overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. Man, this is the word of God. The first three verses actually give a brief summary of the entire book. You know, often when you read the Bible, you'll find that there's sometimes an outline given in the opening section. One of the things we value as a church family is that we want to pe help people to be able to read and understand the Bible for yourself. That's one of our main ways that we think people grow spiritually, reading and understanding the Bible for yourself. That's why our messages are always centered in on a passage of the Bible. Rather than just hearing you know, feel-good stories or the latest spiritual fads, we believe you'll grow closer to Christ by understanding the Bible for yourself. We don't think the purpose of worship is entertainment. I mean, it should be engaging, yes. It should be encouraging, yes. But it should also be challenging. And all of that comes from a deeper understanding and appreciation for the Word of God. If you want jokes, there's always Jimmy Fallon. But if you want to grow in Christ, you need to know the Bible. And that's what we're all about here. We all need to ingest the Word of God personally and regularly to grow closer to Christ. And that's how Zechariah begins. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Everything he says, it's not just his personal opinion. He has a sacred duty of delivering a message from God. Then verse 1 starts off with a listing of three names. Remember how I've said that names are very significant in the Old Testament oftentimes? Names mean something. Zechariah's name means God remembers. Berechiah his father's name means God blesses. And his grandfather's name, Edo, means at the appointed time. So put those three names together. God remembers and God blesses at the appointed time. That's a pretty amazing statement, isn't it? Right there, though, you've got the outline of the whole rest of the book. That's his theme. God remembers and God blesses at the appointed time. In the midst of their depression and discouragement, Zechariah comes with a message of hope that is wrapped up in his name and in his ancestry. Yahweh remembers, Yahweh blesses at the appointed time. And he delivers this message in an unusual way. Three times in this short passage, his message is broken up by the way that he uses one of the names of God, the Lord Almighty. In Hebrew, Yahweh Sabaoth. Whenever a word or phrase is repeated in Scripture, that's a clue that it's really important. Repeated words deserve special attention. The Yahweh of hosts, it's one of the more unusual names of God. And it's interesting to see how different Bibles translate the phrase. The old King James says, Lord of hosts. The NIV that we commonly use says, Lord Almighty. The contemporary English version says, Lord all-powerful. The New Life version says, Lord of all. But I actually think the more accurate versions are ones like the New Living Translation, which says, the Lord of heaven's armies. And the message which reads, the God of angel armies. Man, I like that. Because the phrase heavenly hosts 
just doesn't conjure up much of a mental picture for me. I don't know what hosts are. The God of angel armies, now that gives me a much better visual image. God who leads all the angelic armies of heaven. Hundreds of thousands upon thousands of God's angels, God's messengers, God's army, the ones that cast Satan out of heaven. It's the most powerful force in the universe, and it's all at God's disposal. The God of angel armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord all-powerful. The God of all armies, whether angel armies, human armies, demonic armies, makes no difference. The stars are also called the heavenly hosts. This is the God who is sovereign over all things, whatever they may be. And his name is repeated three times in verses 2 and 3. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says to me. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Three times his name is repeated. What is said before each of those repetitions marks a division of the book. It falls into three sections. The first one is very short. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. That marks one division. It's a short section, okay? Only two verses, four through six, where God looks backwards and describes God's displeasure with his ancestors. That's the past. God remembers the past, and so should they. And then we have return to me. That marks the second division, which goes from chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through chapter 6, verse 15. This section speaks of God's deliverance of his people. Through a series of visions and dreams, Zechariah describes how God has been acting to bless his people. If you want to study that more, his visions and dreams are pretty complicated, so you're probably going to need a good study Bible to help you make sense out of that section. Then chapters 7 through 14 make up the third division. It's a fuller description of his, word, of his words, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. This is what God always does. If you find yourself straying from him, and as a result your faith seems cold, your faith seems dim, you feel defeated, kind of feel exposed to all the temptations, like you're prey to every crazy thought that can come into your mind, God says, return to me and I will return to you. At the right time, the God who remembers you, who never forgets you, who wants to bless your life, if you return to him, align yourself with his will, at the right time he will bring restoration and new life. If you want God back in your life with all the glory of his presence, then come back to him. That's always the formula. Well, that's really the outline of the whole book. But, you know, I think if we can just grasp the meaning of that phrase, Lord Almighty, that's all you really need to remember about the book of Zechariah because it's a phrase that sums it all up. The source of their discouragement was that they forgot who God, who God was and what God is really like. They forgot that God is a big God. And because of that, the evil one was able to mess with their heads and feed them a steady diet of negative thinking. They began to believe that their problems were bigger than God. That always precedes discouragement. When you begin to believe that your problems are bigger than your God. When that happens, you do become easy prey for the evil one. You're easy prey for the forces of negativity and darkness in the world. When you believe your problems are bigger than God, that's when you try to handle things on your own. That's when you stop praying. That's when you stop seeking God's counsel and wisdom. That's when you stop seeking God's will. When a problem seems bigger than God, that's when fear rushes in. Fear takes over, and anxiety eats away at your sleep. Your emotions get frayed. Your thinking gets cloudy. You make bad decisions. 
you dig a deeper hole, you withdraw from Christian fellowship when you actually need it most. And that negative cycle develops, a negative pattern that leaves God out because you think your problems are bigger than God. But when you see God as Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, you begin to have a sense of how powerful God really is. Imagine being these people returning to Jerusalem. As a nation, I mean, they got their butts kicked by the Babylonians. Their army got crushed. Their culture got destroyed. Their way of life was erased. And now they're trying to rebuild. It would be normal and natural for them to be timid and tentative, unsure, self-defeating. In their minds, you know, they were losers. And with that mentality, they caved in at the first sign of trouble. But once they saw in their minds the God of angel armies watching over them, once they realized it was the Lord Almighty in big capital letters who was watching over them, they realized nothing was impossible. Their God was bigger than their problems. Amen? When they faced off against their neighboring tribes that were trying to sabotage their rebuilding efforts, with eyes of faith, they saw the God of angel armies on their side, and their fear disappeared. When they saw with eyes of faith that the Lord Yahweh, their God, was bigger than all of their problems, they accomplished more in four years what they couldn't do in 20. That's faith at work. That is a message we all need to hear. Back in 1953, a pastor, a British pastor named J.B. Phillips, who was a friend and colleague of C.S. Lewis, published a great little book called Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. The title really just says it all. Could that be our problem this morning? Could, could that be your problem this morning, that your God is too small? Do you think your problems are bigger than God? Or do you see the God of angel armies at your side as you face whatever comes your way? Do you feel like you're facing tough situations and problems all by yourself? Or do you recognize the God of angel armies is with you? Do you turn to him or do you just rely on yourself? We all need this message from Zechariah. I think that's why most people look to Zechariah 4.6 as their favorite passage from this book. Zechariah 4, 6, you've probably heard it quoted or sung. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. That's God's promise to you. That's the way to live your life. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. The Lord of angel armies. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard or sung the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, uh, written by Martin Luther who was one of the main leaders of the Protestant Reformation in Europe. Luther had already been excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church, by the Pope, and was condemned as a heretic. There was a price on his head, and all the powers of the Holy Roman Empire were aligned against him. And so during a time of great struggle and personal danger, about the year five, uh, 1538 A.D., he wrote that famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress. And one of the verses of the hymn goes this way. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth is his name. From age to aim to the same, and he must win the battle. Lord Sabaoth. When a lot of Christians sing that hymn, they don't get it. They misread the lyrics. They think Luther meant to say, Lord Sabbath is his name. But Sabbath and Sabaoth 
are not the same word. And Luther had it right. The Lord of Angel Armies was watching over him. There's an old movie called My Bodyguard that tells the story of a teenage boy who's attending a new high school and immediately attracts the attention of all the bullies in the school. He, he gets so tired of being bullied that eventually he hires the biggest kid in the school to be his bodyguard. And that changes everything. He no longer has to hide in the hallways or sneak home after school. His bodyguard goes with him wherever he goes. And when the bullies come after him, he can stand tall, confident, because his bodyguard is standing right behind him. It changes his whole demeanor. It changes the way he faces his tormentors. And it changes him because he knows someone stronger is there beside him. I have a pastor friend whose wife is battling breast cancer. She's just finished her chemo, and the prognosis is good, but now she's starting radiation therapy. She needs to know that the God of angel armies is with her. Maybe you're facing something this week, and you need to know that the God of angel armies is at your side. Sitting in a doctor's office, you need to know the God of angel armies. Facing a tough test at school, the, the Lord of hosts is with you, but don't forget to study. I mean, faith is not an excuse for being lazy. Same thing at business. Maybe there's a big project you're working on. The Lord Almighty is with you, but you still have to do the work. Everyone's situation is different, but what is always the same is God's word to you. God remembers and God blesses at the appointed time. So Martin Luther really did get it right. Get this hymn stuck in your head this week. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus it is he. Lord Sabaoth is his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that there's no situation, no circumstance, no event, nothing, Lord, that we can step into that you aren't already there with us. You go ahead of us, you walk behind us, you guard us on either edge. Lord, you have promised to be our friend and our guardian. You are our bodyguard, Lord, and we can then stand up with confidence, not in ourselves, but a renewed confidence in the path that you've laid before us because you walk with us. Help us this week, Lord, just to remember you, Lord Almighty, you, God of angel armies, you, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. We're grateful, Lord, that you care about us that much. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.